0: Yeah, that's a very important question. I don't think we're anywhere near reimagining education as we should be. I would say, actually, one thing that everybody should do is really read up on the history of education in the places that they grew up in. And you will realize that the history of where education comes from, where modern school-going education comes from very often is is, is pretty complex. Um, it is in, it is influenced by many forces in history that one may have not expected or even thought about. I mean, the American education system has deep roots in colonialism too. It has deep roots in, in, in the church, for instance, as well. And there are many ways in which um, those uh, legacies still show up um, in ways that are sometimes great and sometimes not so great. I think what is necessary is for people to make space, to take a step back, and try to ask the hard questions. The hallmark of an ideal education system is one that has the capacity to evolve. I'm Aditya Vishwanath. I am an alum of the 2018 cohort and I earned a PhD in the Learning Sciences and Technology Design program at the Graduate School of Education. I imagine a world where education systems around the globe empower children, all children, To reach their full potential,
1: welcome to the Imagine a World podcast from Knight Hennessy Scholars. We are here to give you a glimpse into the Knight Hennessy Scholar community of graduate students spanning all seven Stanford schools, including business, education, engineering, humanities, law, medicine, and sustainability. In each episode, we talk with scholars about the world they imagine and what they are doing to bring it
2: to life. Today, we're speaking with Aditya Vishwanath, a KHS alum and PhD recipient in learning sciences and technology design. During our conversation, you'll hear Aditya's experience growing up in a family of educators, developing human-centered design strategies that enable children to imagine and reimagine a quality education, his insane memory, and so much more. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Imaginal World podcast. I'm your co-host, Willie Thompson, as always, joined by my fantastic co-host and co-producer in all things, Taylor Goss. Hello, sir. Glad to be here. Hey, man. Glad to have you here. We have Aditya here. You've heard his amazing Imaginal World statement. Welcome to Imaginal World, Aditya. How are you doing today?
0: Thank you. I'm doing well, and I am so excited to be a part of this. Thank you, folks, for organizing this. This is so fun.
2: Of course. And we were talking about this off-camera Is the proper way to talk to you
0: doctor? Do we have to refer to you as doctor throughout the rest of this podcast? (laughs) Yeah. Look, I'm still new to this. I got my PhD maybe just a few months ago. I'm very comfortable (laughs) with just being called Aditya. Yeah, newly mentioned doctor, but
2: not doctor nonetheless. I know, exactly. That's a lot of work.
0: Aditya is fine.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Is that what you'll tell your students? When you teach them? Uh, Yes, yes. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. 100%. I love that.
2: You'll take a point off the quiz if they call you doctor. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. That's right. Uh, That's so funny. Well, look, you have an amazing Imagine the World statement. And like all of us in I Hennessy, like equally amazing story. But before we can get into the Imagine the World statement, we want to talk about the world you were born into and the world you've experienced thus far. To that end, our first question,
0: as is always, where are you from? And what was your journey here? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. So I was born in the South Indian city of Chennai in India. But I grew up in a total of, I want to say, close to 10 different cities Mm -hmm. until I was the age of 18. I Mm -hmm. went to almost 15 different elementary, middle and high schools across three different countries. So I grew up in India, across multiple cities, um, in the Middle East, in multiple different countries. Every place I grew up in, given the way India is as a country, had spoke a different language, Mm -hmm. um, people from very different cultural backgrounds, even if they were Indian or not. To me, change was always a constant. Mm. And I have seen so many different types of education systems, so many different types of schooling environments, some that I loved, some that I absolutely hated. And then I did my higher education abroad. I moved to the United States for my undergrad, jumped to do a PhD after that. Um, so have seen learning systems in so many different ways. And I think that has really deeply shaped my experience and my um, intuition around what I would like to do in education and how I would like to shape the field in meaningful ways moving forward. I also come from a family of educators. My Mm -hmm. mother um, has been a career teacher and then later an administrator and school principal. Mm -hmm. I have grandparents who have been educators. I have always had the passion of wanting to be and have been a teacher as well, mostly in a volunteering capacity. Mm -hmm. Every single year for the last I want to say now eight or nine years, whenever there has been a summer break or a winter break out of school, I would end up in a classroom, either a middle, usually a middle school classroom. And I would just either be a fly on the wall and tell the school teacher that I just want to sit in the corner, give me a chair or don't even give me a chair. Just give me a space where I can just take notes and observe what's happening. Or I would be an active teacher or a participant in the, in the classroom scene. But I've just really enjoyed being in learning environments. And I've done that in extreme rural parts, rural low-income underserved parts of India to rural low-income underserved parts of Tennessee and Georgia to um, very high-end urban private schools in both these countries. Um, so I've really seen school systems of all shapes and sizes. And I think all of those experiences have deeply shaped why I, and, and, and how I think about and why I care so much about education. Wow, wonderful
2: story. And that's the and also as a son of a an educator, glad to have another another education kid. on oh, no, a teacher's kid, sure. yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 teacher's kid on the pod. Oh, yes, it's a it's, it's a specific experience, you know. And I don't mm-hmm. know sort of how this manifested for you, but it always manifested in, in my experience in elementary and middle school. Of are you doing what you need to be doing? If not. I'll just call your mom.
0: I was like, you never do this for anybody else
2: <laughs> just because she's in the school system. Oh, um, yes,
0: absolutely. And also, I mean, the other part of it is you realize how how hard it is to be a teacher. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. whatever. I mean, my mother is my role model. She's going to listen to this podcast someday and um, she's going to hear this as well. Um, but all of us in my family can agree that she put in so much into yeah. her job. I mean, her job never ended when school ended. You're, right. you're doing grading. You're talking to parents. Yes. You're prepping for next day. There is, like teaching time is a very small part of their job. I mean, there's so much admin work, so much prep work that goes into being a teacher that just goes under-recognized and under-appreciated. And that is true for teachers all over the world. Um, And um, it is just such a, I mean, it's such an incredible profession, I think, um, and a difficult one to be in.
2: Yeah. I mean, to that point though, knowing the difficulties and challenges associated with education, why did you choose to make this your field of study? Because... (laughs) Yeah, you've been yeah. Uh, you've been doing it for a long time. You were fourteen
1: whenever you started volunteering and researching in this capacity, right? Yeah, right.
0: I think so. I, I grew up primarily until I was eighteen in the Indian education system, and. The way I would describe the Indian education system is one that is deeply rooted, and this is probably true for most education systems, it is rooted in colonialism. I mean, it is a relic of the colonial era um, um, in many ways, and we still in many ways have preserved that. I mean, the assembly line model of teaching students in large masses the same standardized information, standardized testing, no real regard for context, for cultural context, for all sorts of other factors. And I was a product of that system. And one element that is very unique to the Indian education system is it was very, very heavily steeped in rote memorization and Mm -hmm. rote learning. Now, it so happened that I had and probably still do have very good memory. So I thrived in the Indian education system. In fact, one story I like to tell people is one of the exams that you take at the in 10th grade, which is called our board exam, you take an exam in languages as well. And I had to learn English and Hindi as part of my learning. I am a terrible Hindi speaker. Mm -hmm. I came from a family that primarily spoke English and we're Tamilians. We're from Mm -hmm. a state in South India. So Tamil is our primary language, not Hindi. And so I really struggled, even though I have a lot of Hindi speakers in my family and, and people around me, I really struggled with Hindi. So, I used to just memorize. I used to just memorize essays because you can you can win you can game the grammar stuff you can game all the other stuff. But what you cannot game are the essays, the long form right. um, questions that come in the test. Where you have to like like they'll give you a topic and you have yeah. to write like multiple paragraphs about it, that you need to really have a strong grasp about the language. So what I did was I would look at previous years exams for like the last 15 years, and I would compile a list of 100 essay topics that have showed up. And I saw patterns where they would repeat every few years or so. And then I literally sat down with my dad and my grandmom, and I had them write out 300 word essays for almost 50 different such topics. I memorized each no. and every one of them. I, I, in fact, memorized them, like I memorized the symbols. I don't even know what some of the words meant. <laughs> right, I, just, right. I just memorized sounds. It would be like you memorizing Hindi, right? Right. Um, right now. Yeah, that, that would be me. And then, that would yeah, be me. Exactly. I'm completely phonetically, then, in no context. Right? Exactly. Just the sounds. And then something showed up in an exam that I had memorized. I just vomited it. I was a topper. Wow. I like, <laughs> I like topped my, cl- my grade in Hindi. And that's the point I'm trying to make because I had friends who were significantly more proficient profoundly just brilliant at language, at sciences, at math, at all these other subject areas, much more than me, but they were completely crushed by the system because they had poor memory. And so I think I left that education system clearly, I mean, academically very successful. And then I that landed me into a very good higher education institution. I did very well until this point of time. And I look back and I realize I did well despite the system, not because of the system. And that is true for everybody that is a product of the Indian education system and many education systems around the world. And that left a very um, uncomfortable feeling in me where I realized we were really losing a lot of talent, a lot of massive opportunity in, in pushing forward innovation and in pushing forward incredible. Humans um, to do wonderful things um, who were being completely suppressed by the system, and I wanted to find ways to really fix that. And that is really what I all the work I do in some ways trying to address that big question. Beautiful. Yeah, that's incredible. It was clear that you have from a
1: young age this passion for reform and education through your personal experience, things you noticed about your own experience, and also your family was clearly supportive. If they were willing to sit down and write many many (laughs) essays on your behalf, clearly they were supportive. Oh yes. So did you feel a drive, a motivation going into, high, going into your undergraduate experience to you were
0: straight arrow into this field for sure? Yeah, that's a good question. I think people around me have told me that it. I tend to carry a lot of clarity and I tend okay. to have hmm. discovered a lot of clarity. I don't feel that way. I mean, I always think within okay. myself, I sense a lot of conflict in ideas and thinking and in stuff. Um, but externally, I am told that I tend to have a very clear sense of meaning or purpose or vision in terms of what I want to do. And so externally, yes, I think I was very excited about I mean, I I went into computer science, I really was excited about building tools, I think I felt very restless, thinking about problems, I wanted to find ways to actively do stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I saw engineering as a very powerful way to build things that would see tangible, immediate impact. And so I have a funny story that I want to share here, because I remember the first time I went into a classroom in a very rural part of uh, South India. So just to paint a picture, it was a 150 square feet room, kids in middle school cool around of um, uh, 35 children in this room sitting on the floor, um, no furniture, one teacher teaching something in the class, sixth grade. And then I went up to the teacher after classes was after my first year of undergrad. And I told the teacher that, look, I'm coming from the US, I have, I'm doing an undergrad in computer science, I can build apps, I can build websites, I can build really cool stuff, tell me all your problems, and I'll fix them. And uh, she looked at me, and she kind of just burst out laughing. And uh, she said, uh, Look, we, we don't really have any problems like uh, you tell me how we can help you. Mm, okay. And that was really a massive deal defining moment for me because I thought that technology was the answer. But I didn't realize what the question was that we were trying to solve for. Sure, it's the answer, but what is the question? And uh, the moment she said that, I opened my eyes and I noticed that that classroom had tablets. There were tablets that were donated by a nonprofit organization. There was a Wi-Fi hotspot that existed there. Um, All the kids came from families where they had smartphones. So um, digital access existed still these children were probably struggling to afford more than two square meals a day. Still, they had never really left the two kilometer radius of the community that they grew up in. And they were clearly very much in poverty. So it left me very confused as an engineer, thinking that engineering was the way in which I could solve these problems. I could airdrop cool technologies that would fix education. And I realized that Well, in many cases, these tools were just sitting on the shelf collecting dust. And then I saw that story play itself out again and again. I mean, when I was in Atlanta for many years, I used to go a lot into schools, mostly Title One, low-income public schools in the city. And I would end up in these classrooms, and I would see these kids um, with, like, the latest iPhones. The schools would have smart boards and fancy gadgets and computers. But these children were like, I mean, there was no career prospect for them. I mean, these children had no sense of purpose or meaning in them, not for their own fault. They had massive ambition, massive drive, but the education system was set up in such a way that they were not going to succeed. They were coming from either single parent homes. There was no adequate sense of agency or support in the curriculum or the program that afforded them meaningful opportunities to build skills, to build meaningful skills beyond just the stuff that they have to learn for the test. And um, there wasn't really a community that was being fostered with the right mentors, with the right role models, all the role models that were presented to them did not look like them did not belong to the communities they came from. So I saw the same stories. Play out again and again where technology was being seen as the solution that would solve everything. It was dropped by the funders or by mm-hmm. the top-down intervention players. And then they left thinking that the problem was solved. And so you then go back to the, to the big funders and the big organizations and even the academics sometimes who sit in ivory towers and you tell them, look, look, there are still massive intersectional problems over here that are not going to be solved tomorrow. And they tell you, well, but all these kids have laptops and they can access Khan Academy and YouTube and TED Talks. So what's the problem? I mean, they can find with internet, with online learning, and this was now almost 10 years ago, um, that was the big thing then, um, online learning, right? Mm -hmm. The MOOCs MOOCs, and the online courses and all of them. The
2: X, Coursera. Exactly. And they were like, this is
0: going to fix everything. I mean, you want to be a software engineer, you want to be a mechanic, um, you can learn that online. And so they're going to go online, they're going to learn it. The same thing was happening in India too. These kids had access to Khan Academy translated in 12 different languages. And so there was not contextual, just language specific content that was available. And um, there was still a massive gap. And that led me to then want to do a PhD in education, where I realized that the the technology bit of it is relatively well understood. It was the human and the learning and all the other socio-technical dimensions that were absolutely not well understood. And I wanted to go deeper into that space and center the learner center the learner, center the teacher, not center the technology, which was what I was seeing happening a lot around me right. back then. I think that so, says a lot about, about
1: your critical analysis and about yeah. sort of your selflessness, because you walked in as an expert in a field and you're like, this is what I have to contribute. This is my mm-hmm. vision for what can better these children's experiences. But you had the ability to stop and really ask the question, maybe they have the tools, but how are these tools
0: supposed to be used? I mean, we're inspired by platforms that children come from, from the worlds of Roblox and Minecraft, where they are part of worlds where they shape the world. They build it, they engage with peers, and there is an incredible amount of learning that can come out of that when you connect it to curriculum, when you integrate best practices of pedagogy, when you integrate it into the standards of what they should be achieving and what they should be learning based on how... The standards are defined in the regions that they live in. You can do some real magic. We had a teacher when we first started in spirit call us the magic school bus for the classroom, which (laughs) for those of you that have not watched the TV show is this show where you enter this magical school bus. It shrinks in size, enters the human body. You learn about the cell and the DNA molecules, except hey, you can fly around and you can manipulate these things. You can touch them. You can shape them. You can go to Mars. You can throw a ball and learn Newton's laws of motion by building the intuition Mm -hmm. behind how the laws of motion work. It's not just definitions, it's not just facts, but you actually can change gravity. You can go to the moon and Mars and understand what's happening differently when you throw a ball in both these places. Yep. And if I were to zoom out as well, I mean, before spirit, I I helped co-found another organization called Maker Ghat, which is based in India, which is a much more long-term play. It's a nonprofit that builds makerspaces um, in low-income communities. We have built close to 10,000 makerspaces today, working with almost a million and a half students. And just for folks
2: who are yeah. we're listening, how do you define a makerspace and like, what is that? Yes,
0: yeah, so a makerspace, again, is a community space, in most cases where you can come in and use your hands to build anything you want to build. The idea is collaborative problem solving, um, not restricted to domain, not restricted to tooling. So you can come in and do art and craft. You can come in and do woodworking. You can Mm. come in and do quilling and weaving and embroidery. You can come in and do robotics and artificial intelligence and data science. Everything under the sun that is some form of productive making with peers, ideally, towards a problem, a community problem or a social justice problem or some sort of broader problem that you face in your specific community. So it's hyper-local innovation that's happening that's driven by the community. And uh, makerspaces today as an idea have become so powerful that you will see almost every single school having a makerspace of some form or function. Uh, Makerspaces can also look like they can look like music rooms. They can look like art and craft rooms. They can look like computer labs um, as well. All of those are maker spaces where some sort of experimental, innovative work happens. Not for some goal, but the goal is the making itself. Right. So the goal is the in crea- the, making. the act. Of exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of. Academic evidence behind a lot of buzzwords I can throw in here that that, <laughs> that explain why this is the best way to learn and the most powerful way to learn. With SPIRIT, we're trying to do the same thing, just in the in the digital space. We're saying let's let's bring that idea of making in the virtual world um, with digital three D objects and tools. But Maker Ghat did that in the physical space. We said we need to build infrastructure for this, especially in the most underrepresented regions um, um, of the country. But the lens was the same. The what I lead with is never the technology. It's never the space. It's never the headset. It's never the VR. Mm -hmm. It is the experience. It is the opportunity of enabling agency of giving control either back to the teacher or back to the student or back to some stakeholder from whom control was taken away at some point of time mm-hmm. um, in the past. And I think that's the future. I mean, especially in a world where we're seeing education systems rapidly being threatened by what's happening in the technology world, by what's happening in the workforce um, with rapid automation and innovation and so and so happening. I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing to reach that point of reckoning mm-hmm. where we have to ask fundamental questions.
2: I will say really quickly one thing about the magic school bus. Go for bus, it. Actually. Yeah, 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 yeah no, and it's, no. I don't know if you remember the episode where they went to the different planets. I think they went to Neptune or something. Mm. And one of the kids took off his helmet and his head froze. Yeah, <laughs> do, do you remember that episode? <laughs> I don't recall that. Yeah, I, I just remember the it was dark, one of those gritty moments. magic what? school bus reboot. It's, it's something yeah. I didn't think about as a kid. Yeah. So he just has like a cold. I think he ended up having a cold after when he came okay. back to Earth. He but, was fine, but as an adult, I'm okay. just like, oh no, he he would he would have died if he yeah. did oh, wow. Like Miss Frizzle would
1: have, yeah. she have
0: been sued. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, it, yeah.
1: You know, so really, when you think about it, Magic School Bus is a, is a
0: dubious comparison. Yeah, it's scientifically inaccurate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, yeah, yeah. I one appreciate could argue it's causing more harm
2: than good. No, I'm <laughs> maybe, kidding. Maybe, but you know, <laughs> it, but it's you know, it's it's a great show. It was a fantastic show. So you mentioned even earlier. I want to talk a little bit about this agency piece before we get into some of our closing questions. And you mentioned. The curriculum reform, how education systems work in the U.S. and other places, and you even mentioned this idea of like India having – well, not idea, the reality that India has a colonial past and creating spaces for new leadership and narratives in the education space. So in your mind, where are we in these conversations around reimagining education as – as a force in our societies and in our communities and what that means for the stories that we tell
0: about each other and we, st- we tell ourselves. Yeah, that's a very important question. I don't think we're anywhere near reimagining education as we should be. I would say, actually, one thing that everybody should do is really read up on the history of education in the places that they grew up in. Mm. And you will realize that the history of where education comes from, where modern school-going education comes from very often is Pretty complex. It is influenced by many forces in history that one may have not expected or even thought about. I mean, the American education system has deep roots in colonialism too. It has it has deep roots in in the church, for instance, as well. And there are many ways in which those legacies still show up um, in ways that are sometimes great and sometimes not so great. I think what is necessary is for people to make space to take a step back and try to ask the hard questions. The hallmark of An ideal education system is one that has the capacity to evolve. And that is always going to be the case. If I had a magic wand and I designed an education system that I believed was right for 2024, Mm. in another five years, there needs to be an ability for somebody else in five years, in 10 years, maybe faster, maybe shorter, who knows, to be able to redo the elements that have become redundant. And it should be done dispassionately. There shouldn't be any ego attached here. There shouldn't be any sentimental value associated. This is is just a tool that enables meaningful growth of young people in our society. And we should do everything we can for the tool to be in good shape. And that's how I see it. It's a a very complicated machine that needs to be oiled from time to time. Some parts need to be replaced. Um, Some some parts need to be upgraded or updated, and some parts need to be eliminated because they're they are legacy systems or legacy parts of the machine. I think what's nice is people are increasingly recognizing that these conversations need to happen because this is systemic reform and systemic reform is very very hard in education i mean there are stakeholders that intersect in the weirdest ways possible i think it's very unique to education maybe education and maybe health is the other field where you will see this sort of complexity um, emerging like nothing else and i think uh, with as and i mentioned earlier in this in this talk as well with the advent of new tools, like especially generative AI tools in the world, um, we are, we're, we're seeing this tsunami that's at our doorstep mm-hmm. that is going to crush the system if we don't do not do something about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's great. I know that's going to stress a lot of people out, but I think that's great because it is going to spark people into action, into asking the fundamental questions. Is the way we do testing correct? Sure. Mm-hmm. Is the way we do teacher training Correct. We don't really think about teacher training, but teacher training is one of the most important pillars of a successful, of a well-oiled education system. Mm-hmm. And most teacher training programs are extremely outdated. You think school curriculums are outdated? Look at teacher training <laughs> curriculums and see how out of date they are. Are we paying our teachers well? Are we supporting our teachers well? No, the Holif- answer question is no, we're not paying them well. <laughs> exactly. And this is true everywhere on earth. All right. And so there are questions that need to be addressed and asked in a very fundamental way. What is the role of a teacher in the 21st century? And not mm-hmm. 21st century, in 2024, it's going to look different in 10 years from now yeah. um, as well. And uh, what what is the role of a student? Uh, what is the role of uh, curriculum? What is the role of math? What is the role of science? What is the role of the arts um, of languages? And each of those need to be examined and re-examined. And, and all we can do is, is is create spaces for that to happen in meaningful ways. So I'm excited for the possibilities here. Um, as someone who is looking to to really dedicate their career towards this work, um, I only see incredible opportunities. I think we need to approach this work, like I said, with a lot of care, yeah, with a lot of humility, with absolutely no ego, because this isn't a game that you win. This isn't a capitalism market, right? Mm -hmm. This isn't a place where, um, I don't think you can approach this in a way in which you try to optimize or maximize. Um, I think the the way you need to approach this is is, is through the lens of inclusivity, through the lens of real, real stakeholder conversations that bring every single person to the table, because you will not have a one-size-fits-all solution here. You cannot. And if you do, then something is wrong. (laughs) Right. Yeah, for sure. That's so heartening for
1: me to hear because you have a vivid vision for for what should change in, in, the, in the field of education, but also the ability to say it is not one size fits all and it's not all one time fits all. Mm-hmm. I.e., mm-hmm. the answer now may not be the answer tomorrow. Right. I've seen that true both in my life, you know, my articulation of what I wanted to do with my life five years ago is different from what it was now. And what might need to change in the education system is gonna be different 10 years compared to five years from now. And we don't always hear that Notion trumpeted by folks who are who are wanting to find big solutions that are that are uh, you know implementable and flashy and able to be articulated. The silver bullet. F- the silver bullet that can be implemented right now. Right. And that. I think is so important. And so thank you for sharing that with us. Mm-hmm. And you know, all this talk of, of maker spaces and collaboration and dialogue to some degree, it makes me think of, of the night Hennessy community. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you can, if you can step back into your mindset of when you were, <laughs> when you were starting your PhD program way back, way back before you were a doctor. <laughs> um, right, right. If you can step back and, and take, think about coming to Stanford, beginning your PhD program and stepping into the night Hennessy community. How did Knight Hennessy and the, the scholars involved in the community impact your experience at stanford and maybe well, even
2: as an alum how are they how are yeah. they impacting you
1: because oh,
0: that's also an aspect of the experience right, as well. yes so you're I, the
1: first alum we've talked to on this podcast i, I was
0: in the very first night Hennessy cohort as yes. well so 2018 we were the first people there were 51 of us mm-hmm. um from like 22 different countries around the world um i had never been in a program of that kind i mean yeah. my my TLDR, my short answer is it was it was <laughs> too long, didn't we It was life for those changing. non-redditors. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was life-changing. I met people that are now lifelong friends. Um, and people who will continue to be shaping my life in very meaningful ways from walks of life that I never thought I would intersect with. I mean, I, I did engineering. I came from that mindset and, um, I met people who came from the world of medicine, from the world of law, from all countries, from all walks of life, from all lived experiences that added to my Understanding of the world in ways that I had not imagined before, yep. and I think that's the idea of when I think about maker spaces and making as well. That's the whole idea: is is one plus one is three, one plus one is ten. It's not. It's not two. And 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 that I think was the power of a program like Knight Hennessy. It was. It was built by the people in it. It was built by the community. Program is the scholars. The program are the people, and that continues to be the case even today. Beautiful.
2: Maybe going down a similar vein that Taylor mentioned around Knight Hennessy and Stanford. There are people who are listening to this podcast who hear what you've had to say, hear what any of our other seven guests at this point have had to say. What advice would you have for people who are applying to Stanford and to KH?
0: Uh, I don't have any great advice, but I'll tell you what I did when I applied.
2: That works too. <laughs> when I applied,
0: I truly approached the application as a way to reflect on myself and on what I'd done till that date. Yeah. And so to me, the application was an opportunity to take out time, because that's the biggest thing. You never really take out time for these sorts of things. You find ways to to get yourself busy with everyday stuff, and you don't take out time to do reflection work. And so I took out time to reflect on where I was with my life, with my career, with my interests, with my goals, and just took out some time to organize those ideas in a slightly cohesive way. And when you approach it through that lens of introspection and reflection, the byproduct of that is a good application, is a very strong college application. And that's what ended up happening in my case. And I would, and it's great because it it eliminates stress. Because I remember when I actually hit submit, I felt so good about the reflection Mm -hmm. that I did. And I felt like I had so much clarity that it did not matter to me whether Stanford would happen or not at that point, or whether knight Hennessy would happen or not, because I had... A sense of where I needed to go. Yeah. And I figured that it would happen one way or the other, yeah. <laughs> um, regardless of what, what was in store for me in the future. Yeah. And that was a wonderful place to be in emotionally, mentally, um, personally. I and mean, I would encourage that mindset with how one puts together this, this application. Because again, there is no one size fits all application. You look at yeah. these scholars and you have people from all walks of life doing yeah. all sorts of incredible and weird stuff, weird in the best possible ways. Right. And I think... That is the beauty of a program of this kind; that it gives you the opportunity to be who you are and who you want to be, and and I think that's the way one should approach um, applying to this program.
1: Okay, so I disagree with you. That's very good advice. <laughs> know, you right? do have great advice <laughs> to offer. That was beautiful. Thank you. So one aspect of this Night Hennessy application that we're discussing that you had such good advice for is the improbable facts section, which for me, I think for many people, we've talked on this podcast with was one of the more difficult parts of the application and probably one of the, you know, most time intensive. How was that process for you? And would you be willing to share one or two of your
0: improbable facts (laughs) with the world? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was the most fun in retrospect. It is very fun. in retrospect. That is the key. Is it retrospect. Is that type two? Cute. Type two fun? <laughs> yeah, called? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Is, that is a perfect way to frame it. In retrospect, <laughs> absolutely. In retrospect, a ton of fun in the moment of it, absolute hell. Um, because because you don't know if your fact is improbable enough, and that's <laughs> so a, And that's a very dangerous yeah. trap to fall into. Because then you start doubting whether you're an interesting person, whether you actually have um anything worth sharing with the world, and and you absolutely do. You always, always do. I think the way I approached it was starting early. That's the only solution because you get the best ideas when you're on a walk, when you're in the shower, when you're doing something that's completely mundane. Um, and then you're like, wait, I'm really good at X or wait, I, I did this thing when I was seven or when I was 12 yeah. or whatever. And then you you see a story coming together. That's why I always bring a tape recorder into the shower with me. Oh, you do? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> kidding. Yeah, uh, 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 so If I had to share one improbable fact, so, okay, I'll share one, which is related to the the point I made earlier about having very good memory. So I was really into Pokemon. really
2: really into pokemon like how into pokemon are we talking here
0: because because i mean
2: because i think we're all 90s babies here so yeah 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 i was was, was peak pokemon fandom yeah
0: let me tell you how into pokemon i was so there was a time (laughs) when i was maybe 13 where there were only four generations so that ended at exactly 493 pokemon in the pokedex yep started with bulbasaur bulbasaur yeah Mm -hmm. and then ended with arceus Oh, RCs, um, yeah. Which mm-hmm. was 493. Okay. And there was a point of time when I was 13 where I could recite every single Pokemon in order in which they appeared in the Pokedex with every single stat that they had. Their HP to their defense, their attack, their special defense, all the stats that exist. I don't even remember the attributes that, that, that were there back then. Their types in order in which they appear in the Pokédex by generation from 1 to 493. I even knew the edge cases where before Gen 4 came out, there were some changes that were made and then Gen 4 came out. I even knew those edge cases, but I was like, actually 294 is X, but after Gen 4, it's now 297 or whatever it is. But I could just do that. You could wake me up at 3 in the morning and ask me to, and and you could tell me what's Pokémon number 307, and I would tell you what that was. I could do that just by recall all of that is gone so do not quiz oh, me on no. that anymore okay. um, but, but there I'm was a so the time when I could do that and I wrote about that in my improbable facts I'm so, <laughs> so genuinely impressed I'm so genuinely impressed completely wasteful it. skill it's not wasteful <laughs> I'm so out of my depth I don't know anything if you asked
1: me about a specific Led Zeppelin show in 1972 in Japan I can tell you but I can't I'm sorry nice. yeah awesome. there it
2: is yeah, You're yeah. More arguably
1: more useful of a skill to have than uh, I mean, you can Pokemon. make an argument not <laughs> a good one. that's amazing thank yeah. you That. thank you that's yeah.
2: Yeah, I'm pretty sure Led Zeppelin's more electric than Pikachu. So yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. See, that's, that's a wow. good one. You know, oh Willie, uh, you know, catch, catch. I'm on a roll today. Hmm. Aditya, thanks so much for coming on this episode of Imagine the World. It's been so great having you on and to have an alum to give us a perspective from what it's like from the yes. outside world. Oh, it's a privilege to be Real a part life. of. it. thank totally. you as well
1: for your time. This is so wonderful. Oh, we had so much fun. We so treasure you being a part of our community. And thank you for your time. And that was that was fantastic.
2: Thank you. A plus. A plus plus. Yeah. Pokemon 4, 494. <laughs> there you go. Level. There you go. All right, man. Take care. Awesome. Bye. Yay.
0: Yeah. Oh
1: thank you for joining us for this episode of Imagine a World where we hear from inspiring members of the KHS community who are making significant contributions in their respective fields, challenging the status quo, and pushing the boundaries of what is possible as they imagine the world they want to see.
2: This podcast is sponsored by Knight Tennessee Scholars at Stanford University, a multidisciplinary, multicultural graduate fellowship program providing scholars with financial support to pursue graduate studies at Stanford while helping equip them to be visionary, courageous, and collaborative leaders who address complex challenges facing the world. Follow us on social media at Knight Hennessy and visit our website at kh.stanford.edu to learn more about the program and our community.